0: Hi, I'm Valerie Steele, Director and Chief Curator of the Museum at FIT, the most fashionable museum in New York City. Welcome to our Fashion Culture podcast series, featuring lectures and conversations about fashion. If you like what you hear, please share your thoughts on social media using the hashtag fashionculture. Thank you so much. Um, Paris Fashion has always been one of my favorite books. It was my second book that I wrote and it came out first in 1988, and then a second edition slightly updated in 1998. And then a few years ago, my publisher asked if I'd like to do a new version with three times as many pictures all in color. And although I can't imagine wanting to redo any of my other books, this one I loved working on so much. If nothing else, it's been a fabulous excuse to keep going back to Paris and doing research. So I said yes. However, it ended up taking me longer than I thought uh, because I didn't want to just add to the last chapter and do a new intro. I went through the entire book and basically rewrote about a third of it adding some of the new information that's been found over the years. But when the book came out, uh, reviewers were very surprised because it wasn't a history of haute couture and it wasn't just a standard history of fashion which goes, you know, there was Worth, and then there was Poiret, and then there was Chanel, and then there was Dior, and then there was Saint Laurent. This wasn't what I thought was the most important thing about Paris fashion. Of course the designers were important, but it seemed to me that what made Paris for 300 years and counting the capital of fashion was really because of the depth and sophistication of the fashion culture in Paris which involved knowledgeable and sophisticated fashion performers and spectators who included artists, writers, uh, flaneurs, actresses, milliners, a whole host of people who collectively made Paris really the center of fashion. So this was what the book was about and what I continued to focus on. Of course the designers are important too but as you'll see What made it special was the culture. Now you have to go back to a time before Paris was the capital of fashion. And for a long time there were many little fashion centers. There was wonderful fashion very early on in cities like Florence in Italy. Or at courts like the Court of Burgundy. The Dukes of Burgundy in the 15th century were much richer and more powerful than the kings of France. Or even in the 10th century, the court of Heian Kyo in Japan. Or in Ming Dynasty China, the city of Suzhou. These were all major fashion cities. With the rise of the nation state, uh, Spain became the first sort of large national fashion center. And Spanish black, partly derived from the court at Burgundy, swept all over Europe in Protestant as well as Catholic countries. In the 17th century though, with the um, appearance on the scene of Louis XIV, France became the most powerful and wealthy continental state. And French fashion became the leading type of fashion. In part, this was a question of deliberate government policy. The minister of um, the economy, in effect, uh, Colbert, said, fashion will be to France what the gold mines of Peru are to Spain. In other words, this was gonna be the source of France's wealth. And foreigners were absolutely astonished at how the French were obsessed with fashion. It seemed that every day they were coming up with new fashions. And in particular, um, fashion seemed to be emerging from the court. So here you see a 17th century image of a courtier and this was the kind of fashion that 17th century French dictionaries would describe the word mode fashion and say it's the style of clothing followed at the court and then the encyclopedia would go on and say the French produce the most and newest fashions and they're followed by people all over the world except in Spain the Spanish never changed their fashions and foreigners in other countries agreed as well they were astonished at the no- constant novelties that emerged in Paris. This was already, I think you could say, that Paris was the capital of Western fashion by the last quarter of the 17th century. And this became even more true in the 18th century when a style of very elaborate. Uh, aristocratic dress became fashionable, but it was no longer so codified as it had been at the court. Instead, it was a question of individual aristocrats or wealthy bourgeois who de- developed a culture of novelty. Here you see, of course, Francois Boucher's painting of Madame de Pompadour, who was a, of the, the official mistress of Louis XV and a great leader of fashion and the arts. But equally important was the rise of a real fashion industry based in Paris and this involved all kinds of artisans whether they were embroiderers, feather makers, couturiers which just meant people who sewed or modistes and here you see a little modiste which is someone who went around selling the trimmings that went on dresses or on hairstyles or hats. It didn't yet mean milliner the way, uh, hat maker, the way it does now. And because the dresses stayed with the same silhouette for a relatively long period and were very expensive to produce, the way you made them new was by adding new trimmings. The most famous of these modistes would be Rose Bertin, who was known as the minister of fashion for Marie Antoinette. And she, of course, didn't go around kneeling on the, her customers' floors like this little gal. Instead, except for Marie Antoinette, whom she visited at the palace, all of her customers came to her. And she was apparently already very bossy and very proud and always boasting about the new styles that she developed for the queen. Uh, another aristocrat said you sometimes had to kind of slap her down or her insolence would get too great because she was already so full of herself as a leader of fashion. The fashion media also were developing and although there were some early attempts at doing fashion magazines and of course as you saw before fashion prints for a long time the most popular method of disseminating new Paris fashions was through these little fashion dolls the famous Poupee de la Rue Saint-Honoré and here you see a dress for one of these fashion dolls they were sent out approximately once a month from the little boutiques on the Rue Saint-Honoré and they went all around Europe, England, the Ottoman Empire, the New World, and this was the way you got information. Some of them were doll sized but actually a couple of years ago in Paris, I saw a life-sized fashion doll, which was extraordinary in a private collection wearing a court gown. Then you did have also, of course, the fashion press, which developed, and I bought these two prints early on uh, in my collecting career. And the first one over there is a French one from about 1800, from 1800. And you can see the woman's décolletage is so low that her nipples are actually showing. Several months later, in February, 1801, the British made this copy, where her décolletage has been pulled up. And to compensate for that, there's a little table with bare-breasted caryatids below. (laughs) So when I bought this, the French dealer sneered, "La poudure anglaise," English prudery. (laughs) Americans also copied French, uh, copied Paris fashions, and and in the book you'll see some examples of copies from uh, Gaudy's Ladies' Book, which are taken from originals from La Mode Illustrée. But the Americans were very ambivalent about copying things from Paris. There are constant complaints about uh, licentious Paris and infidel France where a woman uh, stoops from her high position of um, of modesty and virtue and descends down into the sort of vulgar crowd. And they complained that how could the daughters of Puritan ancestors wear clothes created by the courtesan class in the wicked city of Paris? So this ambivalence existed there. Paris was the desirable source of all new fashions. On the other hand, there was something that seemed at the very least undemocratic or immoral or excessive or Catholic about all these fashions. Now, in the 18th century, Paris was also still the capital of men's fashion and it was just as luxurious and decorative as women's fashion. There was nothing effeminate about a man wearing a pink silk or velvet suit with fine lace and embroidery of flowers. That simply signified that it was aristocratic. However already in England by the 1860s a new style of dress was emerging, not just among the urban bourgeoisie but also among English aristocrats. So here you see this wonderful uh, painting of Sir Brooke Boothby who is a natural man lying in his beautifully tailored uh, as a grayish brown wool suit lying on the ground uh, holding a copy of Rousseau so you can see that he's a natural man uh, but he's also happens to be the eldest son of a baronet. And so this new type of fashion for upper-class men began to appear in England by the 1760s and also spread to France. Many French aristocrats quickly became... Uh, Anglophiles when it came to this sort of clothing and they too started wearing English style dress so sometimes French writers would remonstrate and say go back to your silks and your embroideries carry your hat under your arm and not on your head remember to do it the way it's done in Paris but this was the trend of the future and already by the end of the 18th century London had become effectively the capital of men's fashion but Paris remained the capital of women's fashion. Even before the revolution new styles were emerging that were less formal than the kind of elaborate dresses worn over panniers and stays that you saw in the portrait of say Madame de Pompadour. Here you see already in 1783 um, a painting by Elizabeth Vigée Lebrun of Marie Antoinette wearing what was known as a chemise dress. So very lightweight, high-waisted, deliberately naive and neoclassical. This was part of a wave of neoclassicism that swept through all the arts in Paris. Unfortunately this painting was very badly received when it was shown in public. People said the Queen was showing herself virtually in her underwear and it was quickly taken down and replaced by another portrait of the Queen wearing a formal court gown with hoops and a tight stays and showing her with two of her children. Liberty of dress was officially proclaimed during the French Revolution and although Daniel Roche is correct in saying that the revolution did not revolutionize fashion, nevertheless dress was a very significant element in political discourse and a few components of revolutionary dress did permanently transform fashion. Here you see Count Mirabeau in 1791 giving a speech in front of the National Assembly Um, and he's wearing the clothing, the official clothing of the third estate, the first estate, uh, not not the aristocracy, not the ecclesiastical officials, but everybody else, the 99% of the population and it's a dark wool suit and although he's an aristocrat he's wearing that to proclaim there shouldn't be these divisions between the parts of society that everyone should be a citizen and so this was clearly seen as a kind of highly political statement and indeed this would be the future of menswear this kind of dark wool suit. Meanwhile the working class were wearing somewhat different clothes and here you see this is a a portrait of an actor, the actor Chénard, playing the role of a sans-culottes, culotte is a, a working-class man. Now the term sans culotte means without knee-breeches and unlike aristocratic and bourgeois men who still wore knee-breeches and silk stockings, some working-class men wore trousers. And so you see him here wearing trousers, um, wooden sabots, uh, he's not wearing a red liberty cap because that had already fallen out of of favor with the revolutionary government that was too radical instead he's wearing a cockade a blue white and red revolutionary nationalist cockade on his hat so this was the look of the more radical working class group in the revolutionary period and it was at this point that the government passed a law in which they proclaimed that no person of one or the other sex can constrain any citizen or wife of a citizen from dressing in any particular manner, each being free to wear the clothing appropriate to their sex. Um, And if you tried to prevent them from doing that or force them to wear something else, you would be under pain of being considered and treated as a suspect that is a counter-revolutionary. And that was a very bad thing that could send Get you sent to jail or even to the guillotine and that law was actually passed because some radical sans culottes women were trying to force other women to you know wear cockades and so on and the government was very much against women getting involved in politics and so they're saying no no you can't force people to wear anything they don't want and so this again indicates that as Lynn Hunt puts it Questions of dress lay at the heart of the French Revolution in both its democratic and its totalitarian aspects. In terms of fashion history, Paris really became known, among other things, as the capital of revolution. And there were, of course, repeated revolutions after the Great Revolution of 1789. And this, in a way, has translated also into revolutions in avant-garde art and avant garde fashion. Here you see two pictures. On the far side, after the radical Jacobin phase of the revolution ended, there was a period when some rather wild styles would emerge with the incroyable, the man in his somewhat English style but exaggerated clothing, and the woman, the merveilleuse, or marvelous one, in her more radical version of this neoclassical dress. And then here, closer to me, is of course Delacroix's famous Liberty Leading the People which was painted in 1830, the year of the 1830 revolution. I won't walk you through this also, the 1848 revolution, the 1870 commune, etc. But Paris was a city which was prone to explode and became really sort of the center for all revolutionaries. Now, same year, 1830, uh, we see this beautiful fashion illustration by Gavarni from La Mode, And this uh, was the period in which Balzac was writing for the same magazine saying, the toilette is the expression of society. And in the book I talk a lot about how Gavarni's images of different types and Balzac's novels are filled with different types of people and their clothes are always a very important component into telling you who they are. Balzac believed fervently that dressing the way you wanted to become was the best way to become that in the future. So he really talked a lot and people at the time consistently believed that you could dress in a way that would help you rise in society. So there's a lot of imitation, a lot of competition. This is when you start seeing more and more books explaining the etiquette and fashion because more and more people are dressing in more or less fashionable styles. In addition to a novelist like Balzac you had poets such as Charles Baudelaire who uh, were very interested in the issue of fashion. He was personally a dandy who wore almost all black and this again became very much a feature Of menswear over the course of the 19th century. So sometimes called the great masculine renunciation where they gave up all of the color and decoration in favor of dark and sober looking clothes. But of course for a true dandy like Baudelaire the dark sober style was a question of less is more. You know any old nouveau riche grocer could appreciate jewels and fancy clothes but it took a more refined sensibility to pay more attention to the cut and detail of your clothing. Baudelaire also was one of the first to talk about the relationship between la mode and and modernité. So fashion and modernity were closely linked and he talked a lot about how he liked to look at fashion plates because each one was imprinted with the feeling of its time so that the way a sleeve or a skirt was cut gave you important clues about ideals of beauty at that exact moment in time. So he was really sort of among the first philosophers of modern fashion. Um, You can also see in this the importance of fashion imagery in helping to create the image of the Parisienne. Because if Paris had been seen for a long time as being the capital of fashion, increasingly over the 19th century you see an equal or even greater emphasis on the figure of the Parisienne who because of her clothes and her demeanor represented modern beauty. And it was not only that uh, the great lady could be a Parisienne, but a courtesan could, a fashion professional, even a poor little grisette could. Anyone who aspired to become a Parisian could hope to do so. At the time, there were many people writing things like, provincials put on clothes, but the Parisienne dresses. The Parisienne is more of a woman than any other woman in the world. And then saying, but anyone could come to Paris And become a Parisienne if she were really dedicated to that. Uh, One of my favorite lines came from a woman writer in the 1860s who wrote, in Paris half of the population lives off fashion and the other half lives for fashion. (laughs) Notice this also, uh, there's a chapter in the book about how these fashion plates influenced artists and so you see here with Monet's Women in a Garden how the silhouettes of the dresses are similar to the way the dresses are silhouetted in a fashion plate. And at this point Monet didn't have enough money to be buying dresses for his models. He might have rented them or borrowed a dress because you could rent a dress, uh, just as rent the runway is not a new idea. Uh, And in fact they're very similar, uh, very similar looking women but in different poses and in different dresses and this again is similar to the way fashion photography works that you're showing fashions from all different angles and putting them together into the same image. Here you see an example of a dress from the museum at FIT's collection which is very similar to the kind of dresses that Monet was portraying. Now the rise of the haute couture was a crucial moment in the history of French fashion. So by the 19th, second half of the 19th century Paris became the capital of luxury fashion, of haute couture, which was not just a question of an individual dress made for an individual lady. That's any kind of couture, that's just sewing. There were hundreds of little couturiers sewing dresses for ladies but with the rise of the haute couture men like Charles Frederick Worth took fashion from being a small-scale craft and turned it into big business and high art. He didn't just make one dress for one lady. I mean he might do that for the Empress Eugenie but for most of his customers he made a line of dresses, sketched them and then you could order a particular model from this line in a particular color or fabric. You could modify it slightly say change the sleeves on one but basically it was a kind of industrialized production. It was mostly hand-sewn but it's already conceived of as a collection. At the same time that you have the rise of the haute couture you also have a retail revolution so the rise of the department store and increasingly you have ready-made clothes available. Suits for men and Clothes that didn't need to fit so closely for women, so things like shawls and mantles were often uh, produced in factories and were sold ready-made, or almost entirely ready-made, just needing a little touching up when you bought it at the department store. Here you see a cartoon uh, mocking Worth, where you see he's sort of there, and his assistant is doing the actual pinning. He's there, and he was famous for telling people what to wear uh, and having to wait for inspiration to strike before he would come up with a design. Very, very interesting, much mocked character but very formidable in transforming fashion in this way into something that was a new kind of business. He was very fond of American clients. He said they had the faces, the figures and the francs and a lot of them would even very wealthy women sometimes their husbands or fathers-in-law would complain because they got so many clothes from Worth particularly if they were lucky enough to be visiting the Imperial uh, one of the Imperial palaces for a long weekend which could involve as many as 20 different changes of dress Again, another artist inspired by the world of fashion, Edgar Degas, uh, the uh, millinery, was actually, the milliners even were before Worth in putting labels with their names on them into the hats. Worth, of course, did that also, as Worth felt he was a real artist, and so the label was the equivalent to the signature of the artist on a painting. It was his grief, his scratch, that made it his and made it more valuable. So you have then Paris as this ideal shopping city with the department stores, the little boutiques, the haute couture salons. But fashion is not just about making and buying clothes. It's not just a big store. The geography of fashion and its significance socially went way beyond that to the whole idea of a theater of fashion. Here you see Mary Cassatt's painting of a woman the pearl necklace in a loge. Uh, Paris was in effect a stage on which the newest fashions were acted out by viewers at the theater as well as by the actual performers like Sarah Bernhardt. And some of the um, performances were attended assiduously by small-scale couturiers and milliners who wanted to see what the famous actresses were wearing by famous designers. And some designers had very close relationships with particular actresses. You also had a private world of soirees and balls uh, where people of the same social class would gather and would understand again the nuances of fashion within that particular world. This is one a painting by Jean Berot, who did a number of such images both of interiors and of the same kind of people going bicycling in the Bois de Bologna or going to a chocolate shop or the theater. Some of you know that last year we had an exhibition here on Proust's Muse and Paris Fashion has a whole chapter about Proust and fashion. Uh, Here you see the Countess Greful wearing the marvelous dress that she co-designed with the House of Worth. And Proust learned a lot from the Countess Greful and from her cousin um, who was also a great connoisseur of fashion. This kind of sophistication of fashion culture and the fact that great writers and artists thought there was nothing inferior about looking down on fashion. Fashion was an important manifestation of society and of personality so it's very different than America where you had writers like Thoreau saying beware of any occasion that requires new clothes. Instead, this is a culture which is just saturated in an interest in fashion, and men as well as women were very interested in it. The first of the sort of avant-garde fashion revolutions in the 20th century occurred with the rise of a sort of uh, new silhouette, a somewhat neoclassical silhouette, particularly associated with Paul Poiret. Poiret claimed that he had abolished the corset And put women into brasiers instead which is not true Uh, but he did help promote and popularize uh, this particular new silhouette what you really are seeing though if you look at these figures here and then compare it with photographs at the time you're seeing the gradual development of a new ideal of beauty from the voluptuous Venus of the later 19th century to the slim, youthful Diana of the early 20th century. And in 1903, uh, Les Modes magazine interviewed a lot of actresses, including Réjean, asking about who's your favorite couturier, who's your favorite jeweler, who's your favorite corseteer, and Réjean said, pas besoin, I don't need a corset. And of course, you look at her photograph and you go, honey, you are wearing a corset. (laughs) But the point was, it was now starting to be thought that it was better not to need a corset, to be naturally slim but curvy. Here you can see another illustration from 1913, uh, where you can see the fashions from 1813 were very similar to those from 1913. You were looking back and having a new neoclassical era. The period between Poiret's harem. And Dior's new look was one dominated by a regiment of women of which the most important were Gabrielle Coco Chanel shown here and a little bit later Elsa Schiaparelli but there were literally dozens of famous women couturiers in this period because the feeling was that who better than a woman designer would know how to dress the new woman of the 1920s and 30s male designers like Patou had to say to the press you don't have to be a woman to design clothes you know men can design clothes too. In the 20s and 30s there was a lot of interchange between New York and Hollywood and Paris. Here you see Josephine Baker in Paris wearing Parisian fashion with her car um, but you also had Parisians and French people looking at Hollywood movies, listening to music from Harlem, and there was a constant back and forth of ideas. Uh, I remember reading one French fashion magazine which was instructing its French readers how you could baker fixe your hair, you could make your hair look like Josephine Baker. Uh, During the Nazi occupation of Paris, Obviously, contact was cut off with most of the allied countries. Um, Germans could buy cl- clothes, and wealthy or connected French people could buy clothes, and South Americans sometimes would be buying clothes in Paris. The Germans initially wanted to bring the whole Paris fashion industry to Berlin, uh, but uh, Lelong, who was head of the Couture Association, managed to convince him that it wouldn't function anywhere outside of Paris. So he managed to keep it there. Um, However it nearly destroyed the French fashion industry in terms of its influence in part because people discovered in England and America that in point of fact between 39 and 45 they could get along without guidance from Paris which they hadn't really attempted to do since the Napoleonic Wars when fashion designs were smuggled out anyway. After the war with the rise of Dior and the new look suddenly Paris made an immense push to regain its prestige and its financial position as being the capital of fashion for women. As Dior said we came out of a period of war of women who looked like soldiers and boxers. I dreamed of women who looked like flowers and very rapidly uh, within a few years of French fashion French couture was back on its feet and designers in other countries were once more copying Paris fashion but underneath the strength of the couture system was gradually being hollowed out so that although it appeared very very strong during that golden age of the French couture from 47 to 57 uh, in fact things were happening elsewhere in the world that were making the couture increasingly old-fashioned specifically you had the rise of youth culture in London and in America in particular which undercut the whole interest in grown-up formal fitted expensive clothes. Last year we had a wonderful show about Paris fashion 57 to 68 uh, by Colleen Hill which talked about the rise of French ready-to-wear and of the youthquake designers in Paris people like Emmanuel Kahn, shown who's shown here who said haute couture is dead and these younger designers often women were promoting the idea of youthful styles for a young market. The couture fought back creating their own versions of mini dresses. André Courrèges for example said I'm the man who invented the mini skirt. Mary Quant only popularized it. And Mary Quant said, "Well, that's not how I remember it." But anyway, it was the girls in the street who invented the mini skirt. It wasn't a fashion designer. And here you see Yves Saint Laurent. And this is 1967 with a very radical trouser suit. And then, of course, a year later it was May 1968, and youthquake and sort of uh, semi-revolutionary uh, fashion came to Paris in a great burst. Meanwhile in America the ready-to-wear industry kept chugging along um, and although much of it was indebted to copies of Paris styles there were also radical new sportswear looks and new sort of much more casual looking styles. In 1973 the famous battle at Versailles took place when five American designers were shown uh, versus five French designers and designs by Stephen Burroughs and Halston seemed younger and fresher. Or at least the models, many of them African American, made the clothes seem so much younger and fresher than the more formal and fitted Parisian couture. So you were having new things coming out of New York, new things coming out of London. You were also having new things from the 50s on coming out of Italy, uh, all kinds of boutique fashions coming out of Florence and then that, that fought, Florence fought with Rome which had the alta moda, the couture and then eventually by the 70s Milan took over and you had designers like Versace and Armani uh, and Missoni who were showing clothes in Milan that were easy going, kind of easy chic clothes. Uh, Pierre Bergé once said to the American journalist uh, Jay Cox, what have the Italians ever invented except spaghetti? And this was kind of, and, and Jay Cox wrote the article and he said, well, hmm, how about a kind of easy elegance in clothes like Armani that seems to be very different from the stiff formal French fashions. However, by the 80s, French fashion was booming again here you see Christian Lacroix who in 87 was the first major couture house to open in years from having had hundreds of couture houses in the 50s it dropped in number and and essentially the couture became like a trailer for the film which was really um, makeup and perfume so it was kind of an, an expense like an advertising expense nevertheless Fashion was really fashionable in the 1980s. If you're old enough, you might remember that at all levels And this is when the French started really having um, a fashion museum at the Louvre and they started all kinds of more modern fashion schools and they started showing fashion shows at the Louvre and really emphasizing fashion as a part of the patrimony of France In the early 90s things went into a bit of a downer and the press even in France started saying that you know was the couture dead and the Americans were quite open saying the couture is an absolutely defunct thing and then suddenly in 97 you had John Galliano going to um, Christian Dior and the couture suddenly became super exciting again you also had other foreigners such as Alexander McQueen here also Givenchy 1997 and this in a way shows how Paris has been able to co-opt the best uh, talent from other fashion cities. In the 80s you'd seen the rise of Tokyo as an exciting fashion city but all the best designers like Rei Kawakubo ended up showing in Paris So instead of Tokyo really challenging Paris, it just fed the best of its talent there. Nowadays, of course, you've got fashion cities all over the world, Milan, New York, London, Tokyo, now Shanghai, the Paris of the East, and even even more, you know, sort of from, uh, from Moscow to Mumbai, everywhere you have fashion weeks and fashion shows but it still Paris seems to be attracting some of the most avant-garde of the designers like Iris Van Herpen. So fashion is not just of course a material production of fashionable clothes. It's also a symbolic production, an idea, a series of images. It's something which is exciting and new. Didier Grumbach, uh, who's been working in Paris fashion since the 1950s, wrote, pa- He said in in 2015, Paris has changed. The system has changed. Everything has been transformed. For the system to function, the participants have to be international. Production has to be international. It's clear that we are no longer, we no longer can or should be 100% French anymore. So things have changed a lot. Fashion is a global phenomenon and yet, If Paris is not the capital of fashion, it is still, I think, very much first among equals in the fashion cities of the world. Thank you very much.